This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Welcome, everybody, to uh, the Big Picture Club, brought to you uh, on Clubhouse. You're listening to, uh, and we're very lucky to have been uh, joined with another distinguished fellow from the um, Johns Hopkins Sciences University from Policy Institute, Professor Dan Hamilton. Very excited to have a discussion today with, uh, with Professor Hamilton about not necessarily just the Ukrainian conflict, but more broadly, Europe. Professor Hamilton is a senior fellow at the uh, FPI and also a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, one of the most uh, distinguished in institutions for academia and international relations in the world. Uh, he's led the school's postdoctoral program, the United States, Europe and the World Order, which is very much what we're going to be talking about today, which works in partnership with the Kissinger Center for Global Affairs. He's also been the founding director of the Center for Transatlantic Relations, which has been running for a long time. He's been uh, uh, directing um, the Global European Program at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Kicking off, I just wondered if there was any uh, initial remarks you had before we, we dive into some of the, the questions. Thank you, Piotr, and uh, thanks to everyone. Obviously, uh, it's uh, changed by the hour, given that we're in a war time situation. So, uh, but I'm happy to defer to you and the direction you'd like to take it. I think a good place to start probably is, you know, in the past, what, 24, 36 hours, we've had a very big developments activity on the um, uh, on the European side, particularly in uh, the Central and Eastern European states. Um, obviously, Biden's address yesterday took quite a lot of people, you know, some people thought it was very good, some people critical. But a lot of people, I think, were particularly um, notable of, of his final words, which apparently weren't necessarily scripted, which was, you know, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. This has had people wondering whether that's the United States implicitly calling for regime change. I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit um, your perspective on the um, on Biden's speech, but also just the United States uh, in relationship in Eastern Europe, particularly in, 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 the, in the broader sphere of the, of the conflict. Well, I think the intent of the speech was President Biden's longstanding contrast between democracy and autocracy. Uh, it's a theme he's been promoting for a long time. He said it would be a hallmark of his presidency uh, to focus on that. Uh, you remember the Summit of Democracies. He's He has you know, rhetorically done a lot of things in that space, highlighting the challenge presented not only by Russia, but also uh, China. And so he, the intent of the speech was to crystallize that, to make it relevant to why Ukraine matters in, in a broader context. You can imagine the emotions he was carrying with him that uh, day. He, he flew to Poland after summit, summit, summits in uh, Brussels, met not only with uh, U.S. troops near the front line, but also with, you know, heart-rending stories he clearly had with refugees from Ukraine. If you saw the pictures and you saw some of the interactions he had there, you can see how emotional that was. Um, and so I think at the end of the speech, uh, he he just sort of let loose with his emotion. It clearly was not part of the scripted speech. It was not the text. Uh, and it's not U.S. policy, as everyone has basically said is immediately afterward. But it offered some moral clarity. And it was certainly, if he made a gaffe, it was a gaffe straight from the heart. 
about what this devastation really uh, implies. So it's not official policy. Making regime change in, in Russia, official U.S. policy, uh, you know, carries all sorts of implications with it because in a way you want to, it's, it's difficult because, as I said, the moral clarity, refreshing in a way, but if you want to end the killing, you want to be party to any potential settlement later, um, in some way you have to deal with Russia by declaring that basically not, not going to uh, limits your options. So in a very straightforward way, that's not been the U.S. policy. And um, not only Tony Blinken, but uh, our ambassador to NATO, Julie Smith, was on CNN today and, you know, explained all the context. I don't think they're walking it back. They're not embarrassed by it. They're simply trying to explain the the context in which um, the emotions of the day, I think, were expressed by the president. But I think what you see the president uh, in the whole trip, back to your question about the U.S., is U.S., you know, really uh, returning to its role as a European in power, very fundamentally engaged in all of the issues affecting European security. Um, it was not just a NATO summit in Brussels, it was a US-EU summit, which is an interesting, you know, uh, second anchor of the relationship. And of course, a G7 summit that included PAN and and shows that this, uh, this sort of alliance, if you will, this coalition against the war is much broader than NATO, much broader than North America and Europe. It, it includes countries from all over the world, um, aghast at at what's going on. The president has not only mobilized that coalition, he's trying to hold it together because, as he said, and that's, I think, the key part that he wanted people to note in his speech, you know, four weeks is not a long time. Complete devastation here is stun- stunning, but this could go on for some time. And that unity will be important over the long term, not just uh, over the short term. Uh, and I think that was his message. We got to stick with it. You got to stay the course. And um, and uh, there'll be pressure points still to come. Thank Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, I, I think you raised a, a really uh, interesting point about the, the US-EU dynamic, uh, because I think that what is confusing even for myself and, and, and people who study geopolitics on a daily basis is just how many overlapping organisations, treaties, pacts that there are. And, and just as a sort of follow up to this theme, what we were talking about at the moment is this uh, la- trilateral agreement that the British signed with the Ukrainians and the Polish and, and just generally the sort of the the UK as a sort of weird, it's it's partially in but out, you know, it's very much sort of uh, uh, very close with the United States, but obviously trying to find its place post Brexit. Um, and it's always been lauded as one of the con- uh, countries to lead on security and defence matters in, in Europe. So I'm just curious, being English myself, what do you think about the British particularly in this? Well, they've been one of the most vocal. And I think it was Vladimir Putin who came out and said that of all Western leaders, Boris Johnson has been the most active. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along those lines. So I was just curious if we could take us through a little bit of the UK role, given it's sort of past one foot in, one foot out sort of thing and, and where you see that in the broader European uh, dynamic. Sure. Well, um you know, despite the continuing tensions with the EU on bilateral issues, and many of them are still there on the trade front, on the Northern Ireland uh, question customs border, I mean, these, these things just haven't really gone away. On this issue, the UK really is aligning, you know, with its European partners and its allies. The UK didn't leave NATO, and it's shown quite a strong uh, response. Foreign Secretary's also been very active. She's She's been all over the, uh, the region, in addition to Boris Johnson. So there really has been a very robust 
uh, UK response to the issues. Uh, and that's translated into provision of lethal aid for Ukraine, aligning on the NATO, uh, you know, issues. Uh, you know, the British lead one of the one of the uh, groupings in the Baltic states, along with other NATO allies uh, that was positioned there long ago. Probably, you know, further ramp that up as NATO considers its longer term uh, presence. The trilateral arrangement is is again sort of showing that the UK stands with Poland and and Ukraine and those types of agreement you know that's normal the the U, uh, the Germans the French and the Poles have something called the Weimar tri- triangle uh, which is a informal consultative mechanism that they've done for you know a long time as well there are lots of those types of arrangements um, uh, they're not intended to supplant anything but if you step back and think about uh, Europe, you know, in history, you know, Europe's diversity, all the historic rivalries of Europe still remain a determining aspect of efforts to maintain stability on the continent. And it's maintaining peace in Europe is traditionally dependent on a very complicated set of structures that balance all of these conflicting interests. Uh, and that's why people talk about European security architecture, the architecture of Europe's security usually has involved embedding countries in all sorts of overlapping mechanisms so that they go to meetings rather than go to war. Uh, and, you know, that's been a complicated set of arrangements. Americans aren't accustomed to that necessarily. So sometimes we're befuddled by all the acronyms and all the, the terms and the who's in and who's out of what. But that's been the way Europe has tended to organize its security. I think the challenge now is whether that architecture, as it was built up after the end of the Cold War, was because that was adapted from the Cold War structures, much of it is now relevant to the future. And whether the institutions that were created um, and reorganized 30 years ago need to again be revised and, and their relationships newly thought through. Because the parts of Europe that are less integrated into those structures are, in fact, those in East Central Europe, not only Ukraine, but a whole host of other countries. And that's the center and the seedbed of these conflicts. And I think we have to focus much more clearly on on those challenges. Right. Thank you very much. Um, so to switch up gears a little bit, Professor, I appreciate those answers very much. Um, but one country that we're, we're, we're thinking a lot about, because it's the, the largest economy, it's arguably the head of the EU, um, but now it's also going to be one of the most important militarily is the is the German, is the German element to all of this. And I could be the sort of the remilitarization, so to speak. I think it's a hundred million, uh, billion dollars that they've pledged, uh, all of Schultz, the Chancellor has pledged towards building up or strengthening or broadening or enhancing enhancing, whatever words you want to use, the German military. Uh, and so I'm curious from your perspective, what difference do you think that that's going to make in the immediate European security scene? Well, I think what's been uh, one of the really striking developments since the war has started is how it has transformed a number of European countries and how they're thinking about security and defense. And given that Germany in particular, as you said, because of its location, its size, its history, and sort of its attitude uh, to its region changing the way it is, is really, uh, you know, letting stand up and take notice. It's a kind of an about face, at least rhetorically. Chancellor Schultz pledged to increase the defense budget to 2% of GDP, which is sort of the NATO standard, including a, a, what he calls a special fund of 100 billion euros um, solely for armaments projects. 
and you know that if you think of German history and the German attitude to that is quite quite striking. Uh, they quickly signed, or they're about you know finishing, putting finishing touches on a contract for uh, U.S. built F-35 fighter jets uh, because they've been going an inconclusive debate for years to replace their tornado fighters, which were aging out. And they basically looked like they were going to go with the French-German consortium for a new uh, generation. The problem with that was that would have precluded uh, Germany participating in what's called NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements. That is, nuclear weapons possessed by the United States could, can, under NATO arrangements can be flown by other allies, including Germany. So Germany, non-nuclear power, but could participate in nuclear decisions because of this capability. So by purchasing the U.S. fighter jets, that allows them to continue that nuclear sharing agreement because those jets can carry those types of uh, weapons. But that's a major investment uh, in terms of uh, money. And if you uh, you know project, say, given the size of the German economy, you know this sort of defense loving spindle of two percent uh, by say you know twenty thirty one from twenty twenty one, it's about seven hundred seventy billion euros. I mean that's a lot of money. Last year, Germany's entire defense budget was $47 billion. So uh, this is a major ramp up, at least still on paper, of Germany's uh, you know, ability. There's also interesting news that Germany's considering purchasing what's called the Iron Dome defensive shield. These, this is a shield that Israel has. If, you're, if anyone remembers or reads about the Persian Gulf War, first war when uh, missiles were being sent to Israel, they were able to get rid of, you know, stop all of those missiles from landing or most of them because they had this defensive shield that had been developed in conjunction with the United States. So for Germany to move to something like that, which would not just protect Germany, but also probably the Baltic states, Poland and Romania. So you would have a German-based system protecting Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern European NATO allies, at least, uh, that's a major, that would be a major thing. It takes, it'll take a few years to do that. It also causes huge implications for the balance with Russia, because if you, you know, know about the Cold War nuclear standoff, we had decided not to build defenses, but just to leave both sides open to destruction. And that was the, what, you know, mutually assured destruction, the MAD doctrine, which meant we, we were confident that both sides, even if they were struck with nuclear weapons, could retaliate, which would stop anybody from doing something so crazy. If you introduce defensive capabilities into that, uh, then the calculations are all different. So we would be entering a very different era of strategic stability calculations. Uh, so the implications here are quite, quite remarkable, especially if they're being initiated by Germany. On the other side, you see, though, that much of this is still, as I said, on paper, it's still about spending money, not necessarily about what the strategic goals are. And the Iron Dome discussion is just one example. So it seems to me, it's not just Germany. Denmark, you know, tiny Denmark has also completely revised its uh, defense uh, ambitions, also boosting its defense, but also they're going to hold a referendum now on June 1st, uh, whether Denmark should abandon the opt-out it has from the EU's common security and defense policy so that Denmark could take place in EU military operations. 
it you know it, it had it had opted out of that just like the UK had uh, when it was a member of the EU, but now they're reconsidering that. So for that's kind of a revolution that's almost equivalent to the German one, except for of course you know on a smaller scale. So you see this happening everywhere. I think the challenge for us is how do we turn these pledges of particularly of money into something that is really strategically useful. And there, I think uh, we have to move away from this notion of strategic autonomy, uh, which has been promoted in recent years, which implies Europe wants to be, kind of be left alone to do things, which I wouldn't think most Europeans right now would want, uh, to what the Finns, the Finland calls strategic responsibility. That is how Europe can spend more on its own defense, but also do more for its defense. And that's going to, I think, just be, we're just at the beginning of that conversation. Thank you very much for that comprehensive breakdown. I think, you know, a lot of us are very interested in Germany, particularly just because of how different their position has been for many, many a decade, um, un, uh, obviously. And um, I, I think that it takes, you know, a shock event like this, uh, a bit of an inflection point to really sort of shift. And, and, and that's being reflected in German uh, military stance, but also uh, leading me into my next question is um, energy security. Uh, Germany has obviously been a, a country that has been has arguably looked at uh, the, the purchase of natural gas and its relationship to natural gas, particularly as one through an economic lens. Um, but this has been reframed after what happened on February 24th. Uh, three days later, uh, Chancellor Schulz announced Germany's, plan, Germany's plans to treat energy as a national security matter and basically wean itself off uh, natural gas or LNG specifically. And what we saw in the past week was this signing of the um, of quite a significant deal uh, between them and the Qataris. And, and Qatar has generally sort of positioned itself an ally of European energy concerns and, and sort of in some ways security because the uh, US has designated them a major non-NATO ally. So I'm just curious if you could go into a little bit more about uh, Germany's relationship with the energy security. I think they've had a pretty poor, you know, people criticize them for the lack of investment or time they've considered nuclear. So if you could break down that a little bit for us, and also if you wanted to expand on energy across the, the region more broadly, that would that, that, be welcome as well. I mean, it is interesting, you know, if you just step back, uh, I mean, Germany built pipelines to Russia for gas uh, starting in the 19, uh, early 1960s, uh, in the middle of the Cold War, when Germany was still divided, and you had the standoff over divided Berlin, you know, it was the height of the Cold War. And yet, because of the energy relationships, those German pipelines were built. And there were tensions even then with the United States. This term, uh, Wandel durch Handel, that the Germans used, changed through trade, emerged really at that time. So this is nothing new. And there have always been tensions about German energy uh, dependence on, on the Soviet Union at the time. So for them to turn now away from all of that, but you know, if you remember all the disputes over Nord Stream 2, the Germans sticking to say, we're just not going to you know, stop it, we're, we're going to go ahead with it. For them to sort of just turn on a dime now on all of this is really also quite uh, amazing. So uh, it's it's quite a uh, statement in terms of what, what they've said. Also, just in the last day or so, besides striking these deals, Energy Economic Minister Mr. Habeck said, Germany intends to cut its dependency on Russian oil by half by this summer already, be independent of Russian coal, which they also get, by the fall, this fall, and be almost free of Russian gas by 2024. 
I mean, that is probably even more revolutionary than the defense uh, discussion that we just had about German, where it's facing. And what's really striking about all this is this is being done by a social democrat, green, you know, free democrat government. For Olaf Scholz to stand up and say, Germany's not going to deal with Russia like we have been doing traditionally, it was important that it was a social democratic chancellor that said that, uh, rather than a Christian democratic conservative. Um, Angela Merkel had said that she would have had a lot of blowback in German society. But for the social Democrats to, to do this means it's more deeply rooted potentially in a German you know, societal consensus, although it's not certain. You can see the German left sort of, you know, now starting to reawaken uh, and be critical. The Greens are torn because of these uh, these energy announcements also mean continuing with fossil fuels longer than they had wanted for the energy transition. So there's still debates to be had uh, in Germany. But if you step back from just the German announcement and see what also happened this week, probably the most significant announcement the president made in Brussels was a new energy, transatlantic energy pact uh, with the EU. Uh, and that is um, quite stru- striking. It Basically, the U.S. and the EU agreed to reduce Europe's reliance on Russian energy and deploy clean technologies together, first to export liquefied natural gas to Europe, 15 billion cubic meters this year, more than it's doing right now, which will completely replace all of Russian LNG supplies, not all natural gas, but liquefied natural gas. And then agreement to provide Europe with 50 billion cubic meters of LNG through 2030 at least. So the U.S. is becoming Europe's major partner uh, in the energy field as it tries to sort of wean itself off of energy dependence. And what's really striking is that last month, February, U.S. LNG supplies to Europe were even bigger than all of Russia's natural gas pipeline supplies to Europe. So uh, the U.S. is really stepping in a major way here. We're not going to probably replace, fully replace, you know, all suppliers for energy-starved Europe, but the transatlantic energy economy is starting to get noticed, and it's going in importance, and actually flows both ways. Uh, Europe, in the United States, for instance, the biggest investors in the U.S. energy economy are European companies led by German companies. German companies are the largest foreign investors in the U.S. energy economy. And if you turn it not just from fossil fuels to, but to the future fuels, to renewables, it's the same story. U.S. companies in Europe are a driving force for Europe's green revolution. If you look at who's contracting for renewable energy agreements, those are usually long-term you know, purchase agreements for solar, wind, it's, it's U.S. companies. They account for more than half of those long-term uh, purchase agreements in Europe and have been doing it since 2007. So uh, the Green Deal in Europe is not going to progress as quickly if U.S. companies aren't part of it. And they are because they're so deeply invested in the European energy economy. It works the other way. You know, there was just a huge auction, uh, I think the largest auction of offshore wind sites in U.S. history last month off the coast of New York, New Jersey. And of the nine winning companies, eight of them were European. So European investment in the U.S. energy economy, both both fossil but also fossil-free, is also significant. Uh, and that what it underscores is how resilient and how 
uh, important the transatlantic economy overall is to everything we're trying to do now about Ukraine and Russia. Becoming, it, it sort of highlights how the transatlantic economy is, is the geoeconomic base for how the U.S. and Europe are going to deal not only with Putin, but actually probably also with China, uh, because those connections are so deep, they range far beyond energy. Um, and I think we're just starting to see the beginning of how we can tap into that uh, as we go forward. Thank you so much. Yes, it's, it's very interesting. There was an article I read in Al Jazeera, and they had a great infographic about uh, the world's proven natural gas reserves by country. Billion standard cubic meters, Russia is just under 50, uh, and then uh, United States is about 13 or so. So it's the United States is a country or the country with the fifth largest amount of proven natural gas reserves. Tar is third, and Iran second. So definitely, um, the United States is, I think, going to benefit from this. And this was a question I was going to say for later on, but since we're on this area, obviously, the deal that they signed in the past couple of days, it's it's huge. And it's got some people wondering whether or not the United States welcomed or almost sort of, I want to use the words delicately here, but sort of is, is it's going to profit a lot from the shift in energy provision uh, and security, therefore. And shale gas uh, being an equivalent to LNG or liquefied natural gas is much more expensive. And the cost of prices are going to be quite significant for European um, consumers. Some people feel that the United States is, uh, is, is, is going to come out from this as a great winner, whilst the Europeans and the Russians lose, the Ukrainians are in a tough position, China's in a difficult place. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel that that's a little bit of a, uh, an unfair assessment? Or do you think that it is somewhat true that the US has, has un, un disproportionately gained over the long term? Well, the U.S. is gaining because it is becoming uh, one of the world's major energy suppliers because of the developments over the last you know, few decades. So there's no doubt about that. But I think one has to think about the particular markets for oil gas. They're different. So gas is really determined by price, and it's a global uh, market. So uh, in recent years, much of the U.S. LNG has been going to Asia because the prices there have been higher. And now what's happened is it's been flipped. And so now you had even tankers literally turning around mid-ocean on their way to Asia, turn around and go back to Europe, uh, mainly because of the price differential, not because the U.S. was engineering anything. So if the U.S. wasn't selling to Europe, it'd be selling to Asia. It's not like it's going to profit more from selling to Europe than selling to Asia. Uh, it's, just, it's just where the prices are now. Uh, and that was not jacked up uh, the U.S. It's by Mr. Putin uh, and the consequences of his war. So, and the Europeans are all behind that, frankly. So, even though it's yes a higher price uh, situation, I think in the U.S. clearly does benefit from that. You don't see indications that that's the, the primary motive. Uh, you saw Secretary Blinken and others uh, go around the world trying to get other energy producers to help Europe. And as I said, even though U.S. Has, would have more supplies, it can't replace what Europe needs. It's not going to be the supplier. It needs Norway, Qatar, others to join in, just as Europe does. That's why you saw uh, Minister Habeck go to Qatar. So it's not this either-or thing. It's not a purely trans, you know, transactional uh, profit-seeking thing to do. I think that where the real profits are probably over the longer term are actually in the clean energy space uh, because that's going to change the world. And that's where, frankly, U.S. and European companies, again, are, are standard setters. 
the challenge there is how we commercialize those breakthroughs. And some are just existing technologies. It's not that we have to come up with it. They already exist, but they need to be scaled up and uh, shown to be deployable at scale so that uh, we can start to you know, unfold them across both of our economies. That'll be, I think, the real revolution. And uh, certainly Europe has a great interest in that. As I said, it's, a, it's the largest investor in the U.S. energy economy also in these areas because it sees where the innovation is. And U.S. companies are deeply involved in, in the R&D field in Europe, uh, also in these areas, because they know Europe you know, are world beaters when it comes to uh, sort of breaking the link between the production of wealth and the consumption of resources, especially in Germany. So I, I really, just reducing it down to one little element, it seems to me missing what's really going on here, which is a very fundamental revolution in how uh, energy will be, you know, produced and consumed uh, over the next decade or, or more. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so w- what about NATO in all of this? What about NATO's longer strategical plans? I remember reading about their, that they're going to be, you know, holding quite an important meeting later on this year. And we're thinking about generally the, uh, the identity of NATO, given what's happened in the past month. In many ways, I, I see this uh, as a real re-legitimization of the, uh, of the alliance uh, in a time when it was sort of wondering what it was it was supposed to do, what it was meant to focus on. Was it going to become a transnational kind of uh, defence pact, uh, security alliance, what sort of things like that? Where do you think NATO is going to go from here? Are we going to see a drastic revisement of its uh, strategic plans or are they largely going to be in keeping with what they had had before these events uh, really unfolded? Well, uh, you know, of course, their focus right now is on the short term, the immediate response. And, and that's been uh, very much focused on providing uh, lethal assistance to Ukraine, cyber support, intelligence support, beefing up NATO's own defenses and trying to avoid, you know, slipping into a wider war. Clearly, that's going to be their main focus. But the next NATO summit has been scheduled for a long time to be in Madrid at the end of June. And a year ago, when they had their last summit, they said, we will have a new strategic concept at that time. So they've been working on it for almost a year. Uh, The strategic concept is sort of NATO's guiding document, public document that thinks about 10 years out and says, you know, how should NATO position itself for a longer term? When you're in the middle of this conflict, of course, it's hard to think beyond tomorrow. So I think they'll be challenged with a 10-year document. Nevertheless, they committed to doing that uh, just the other day when they met, and they said, we're still going to go ahead with that plan. But now I think all of those plans for the last year have to be revamped. I have been running a task force on NATO strategic concept for the last year, and we have a report that has come out. Uh, if so, if people are interested in like real details, you can just go to uh, transatlanticrelations.org, and uh, which is my website, and you'd you'd find it there. It's a thirty-page document, so I won't want to bore you with that. I think, but the, I think the highlight points that I have been arguing, and some argue, is NATO needs to rethink a number of things now. Its primary task that Alliance has is collective defense. It has a number of core tasks that it calls, uh, three core tasks, uh, collective defense, crisis management, cooperative security, that's what they call it. But of all those tasks, collective defense, you know, is number one. It's the only task mentioned in the North Atlantic Treaty 
which which is the treaty you know framing NATO. And for the last decades, the concept of that was basically what we call tripwire forces. That is, you have small forces deployed in eastern allied states, but you're basically relying on re- rapid reinforcement by forces that are deployed somewhere else, like in Germany or even in the United States. You know, the idea is U.S. forces will come across the Atlantic to reinforce. But, you know, the implication of that is you're going to give up ground. If, say, a Baltic state was attacked or Poland, you're going to give up territory, and then you'd have to reoccupy it after those reinforcements would come. I mean, I think if you look at what's happening in Ukraine today, the destruction of Ukrainian cities, the taking of the territory, the fact that President Biden and others have said we will defend what they say, quote, every inch, every inch of NATO territory, the implication of defending every inch is you can't, you know, reoccupy the stuff that's already been taken. So I think one fundamental implication is NATO has to go to forward defense, that is permanent stationing of forces on the eastern borders of NATO and what's called deterrence by denial, not by tripwire. That is, you have to be able to you know, stop anybody from even entering the territory. That's going to be that's a very fundamental difference in terms of of military posture, and it requires just a whole different way of thinking. So that's going to be fundamental. It also requires NATO to revise its maritime strategy. You know, we're thinking about Central Europe on and the ground, but of course, there are many challenges on the seas. Ukraine is also a Black Sea state, and if you see what's happening with the conflict, Russia is essentially taking much of the. Black Sea territory away from Ukraine. If if Russia decides to seize Odessa, uh, Ukraine's largest port city, it would cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea. Uh, we have three NATO allies who are Black Sea states. So NATO has the Black Sea is also a NATO lake, if you will. In uh, Turkey, which controls the straits uh, that leading into the Black Sea, is a NATO ally. So that has to be really rethought well. You have to think through all of the cyber issues that we've been thinking about. You know, is that a, is a cyber attack an Article 5 contingency that is a collective defense contingency? The alliance has said it could be in certain situations. Well, what does that mean for the alliance? So, um, you know, many, many uh, questions here, including, you know, what's the balance between U.S. Uh, and European militaries. The U.S. is basically, because of attrition over the years of European defense capabilities, the U.S. is really taking on the biggest load of European defense. Uh, so is the U.K. You know, Secretary General Stoltenberg likes to say, you know, most of European defense is actually provided by non-EU uh, members. <laughs> uh, so there has to be a kind of a resorting uh, when the Europeans pledge more money they're going to have to do it in a way that means they also step up in terms of responsibility. That's a whole bunch of stuff. And the last piece, which we haven't gotten to, but is, you know, where does China figure into all of this? Uh, Because China's strategic importance to the alliance is growing. Uh, The North Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific theaters, if you will, are becoming strategically interrelated. And any strategic long-term concept for NATO is going to have to think hard about how 
they should think about uh, China. That's something we can um, we can probably come back to in in a minute. I just want to finish closer to the European home for a second on the NATO front. So again, I'm just kind of curious given we touched upon it before about these so many different security constructions, arrangements that exist in Europe. What about NATO's relationship to the EU? Obviously, Macron is uh, going to be holding an election in the next, well, he's going to be participating in it rather, uh, in the next, what, two, three weeks? And he's been a huge advocate for European defence and this strategical compass initiative that the uh, European Union brought out in a document, I think, late last year. So I'm just curious if you could talk us through a little bit the dynamics of NATO to Europe, particularly as it begins to more be more securitized uh, and how that could affect the uh, the dynamics of NATO and how much it focuses on NATO or shifts maybe further afield. Well, again, this is the American point of view. Uh, you might want to have a French colleague join at some point, but <laughs> if we can much, you know, much of the debate in the last number of years uh, centered around sort of French perspective is this term strategic autonomy that President Macron has been using. And in fact, you know, European EU leaders also have, have used. The term comes out of an earlier discourse within the French national strategic community to describe France's ambition to boost its capabilities, reduce its dependencies, so it could act alone if it needed to, to protect French interests, primarily about crisis management operations in Africa and sort of Europe's southern periphery. Um, and the EU, you know, has been trying to develop its capacity for military action for decades uh, without a whole lot of uh, success. But it was just in 2016 that this term started to be used at the EU level uh, the EU published a document uh, called its Global Strategy, and that's where they started to use that th- that term. Uh, I think it, it took on a particular uh, extra lift when Europeans became more concerned about U.S. reliability as an ally under the Trump presidency uh, as they looked to China's, you know, technological challenges uh, and concerned that you know Europe could be trampled by the U.S. Chinese uh, competition. It, it got further energy by by concern about technological you know uh, issues. The fact that Europeans were so dependent on all this equipment, uh, medical equipment, and other things when COVID happened, which showed how dependent Europe was. And so, over time, this term has sort of taken on a, a meaning that is kind of muddled. You know, it's, it's hard to know what it even means. It started with a strategic, but now it, you know, you see EU leaders talk about economic sovereignty, data sovereignty, digital strategic autonomy. It hasn't really helped things. But I think what it does convey is this sort of a shared and pretty deeply felt anxiety of many, many Europeans that their experiment of integration is being imperiled by sort of internal weaknesses and these external forces, and that the autonomy narrative, as it's developed, has been meant to generate sort of EU-wide consensus behind these ambitious types of efforts to boost not only military but technological uh, capabilities. But it's not a consensus term. Uh, uh, You know, if you go to other countries like the Nordic countries, uh, Finland or Sweden or the Netherlands even, they prefer to talk about strategic responsibility, not autonomy. Autonomy implies you want to break away. Uh, Responsibility means you're going to step up to become capable. 
and the, and you start to tour, turn toward more the idea of capability, which is, of course, where it interacts with the United States. Uh, the U.S. has always wanted Europe's, Europeans to be more capable. Uh, I think the U.S. have been traditionally reluctant about competition between NATO and EU structures and planning processes, and also doubtful, frankly, whether European militaries can conduct even these operations without U.S. support. Uh, the, reality, the hard reality is Europe has become reliant on all sorts of, you know, what we call enablers that are provided actually by the United States. Lift, strategic lift, uh, logistics, intelligence, command and control, all of these things Europeans really don't have, and they're being provided by the United States. It, you know, if the French were flying to Africa, they'd have to get on U.S. airplanes. You saw the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan where the Europeans couldn't even withdraw their own people without U.S. I think that was embarrassing, but it also sort of reinforced this determination to do more. But I think in the context of the war now, this notion of autonomy implies Europe on its own. As I said, I don't think many Europeans want to, at the moment, be left alone uh, with Mr. Putin. So uh, I think strategic responsibility might be a better way to uh, for us to square the circle here and allow NATO and the EU to start to work to, together, focus mainly on European capabilities and allow Europe to do more. I'm happy to talk more about what that might mean, but let me just stop there. But I think that's where the debate is shifting. Europe wants to spend more money on defense. Okay, what should it spend it on? And it should start to be able to do some more things for itself. And I think you now find a U.S. you know sympathy uh, for some of that. Thank you very much for that great really really great um appreciate that the uh, i think then that's one of been been one of my biggest intrigues is this sort of nato eu defense pact relationship it, it's quite uh quite complicated and i think you did a great job of uh taking us through that broaden it out to the to the global perspective professor you've mentioned china i mentioned qatar and generally i'm very curious to hear your perspectives on the broader as you said, uh, alluded to earlier, sort of North North Atlantic, Indo-Pacific relationship. If you could go into that a little bit and also what you touched upon before when we've spoken about the era of disruption, I think that would be a really, really good place to uh, to explore and then we can begin opening it up to questions. For You know, people say, well, you know, have we are we in a new period, new era now? And I would argue that we are. And uh, I think you can start with Europe, that when the Cold War ended, the Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet Union dissolved. There was kind of a, a sense for 30 years or close to it that Europe was in a, you know, a period of, of quite relative, relative stability. The Balkan Wars were the big outlier, of course. But having dealt with that, the basic frame, I think the mental frame in Europe was of a time of, of a Western-led order that was quite magnetic to other societies. It was continuing to expand, take in the countries as they could join it. There would be a place for countries in Eastern Europe. You know, over time, Russia would probably find some place in that order. The United States would just continue as a supportive power. China was going to be what people said at the time, a responsible stakeholder in the international system. You know, globalization was win-win for everyone. Uh, and that, you know, Europe had this un unprecedentedly wonderful period in front of it. I'd argue that paradigm, how wonderful it is, is simply a paradigm lost now. 
and we are in a we are in a much more dangerous and volatile age, probably persistent confrontation with Russia in Europe, and a broader world of disruption, an age of disruption, as the way I would call it, uh, which is includes competition with Russia and China, but I think it goes far beyond uh, that. Um, and that's why I think one has to then step back from what's happening in Europe, think of other deeper trends here. Uh, you know, emerging technologies are changing the whole nature of competition and conflict. The digital transformations we're seeing are up, just upending most of everything, but including diplomacy, defense, how society is even connected. All the flows that connect our society, energy, environment, technological, human flows, and the dependency of our society on those flows, they've all increased dramatically. And that the what we're seeing is that not only big states, but small states, even groups, even individuals can disrupt those connections so that the critical functions of our societies, keeping the lights on, keeping people healthy, you know, just keeping goods flowing or services are susceptible to disruption, interruption, disturbances, shutdowns. That's security. That's not tank armies, but that is uh, that is fundamental security. And we have to think harder about how we deal with these types of disruptive threats to the functions of our societies. During the Cold War, the front line was the fold of gap. It was the Iron Curtain. You could see it. You could touch it. Today, the front line could be the Washington Metro. It could be the Hoover Dam. It could be the Frankfurt Airport. It is the Donbass, uh, but it can be the Israel, Istanbul's Grand Bazaar. It, it, these are threats that could affect us right in our societies. They're not about you know distant armies. This is a very this is a very different type of age, you know. And if you add to that, as I said, some of these other flows, we have been dealing with a unbelievable pandemic. Uh, there's no reason to think we won't have an endemic types of diseases like that going forward. Climate change, transition to clean energies, create all sorts of other types of security dilemmas. Uh, and, you know, and autocratic leaders, also some democratic ones, uh, they politicize some of these flows to preserve their power. Think of how the Belarus uh, dictator, Mr. Lukashenko, took Afghan refugees, flew them to Belarus, instrumentalized them by sending them to the Polish border. This is the type of, you know, manipulation of flows and human tragedy that is the kind of world we're facing. So it's a big, big, obviously big, big picture here I'm trying to paint, but we have to be not to think about state-centric security. We have to think about societal security. We have to think about how we build resilience to these types of threats that are beyond sort of the purely military dimension. It's just a fundamentally different way that we're going to have to think about how we interact with each other. Absolutely. One of my biggest fascinations and sort of which propelled me to pursue the career that I do in multilateralism is how risks, more issues, more challenges are being transnational in nature and is the nation state 
Um, so to speak, the best place to respond, what ways can we push back against uh, growing sort of unpredictability or disruption as you as you are, uh, are framing it? So uh, what we're going to do now is open it up to the audience. So if you're listening in on a podcast, you are listening into a live audience discussion, people from across the globe tuning in to listen to Professor Hamilton talk about this, uh, this very timely issue. I first want to go to Jacob because he is the man, uh, the legend who helped to, to cure uh, and orchestrate this entire discussion. So, Jacob, all yours. Thank you, Piotr, for that kind introduction. Um, thank you, Professor Hamilton, for joining us uh, this afternoon. I have a question for you, uh, and I think you already touched on this to a degree, um, about the potential for an EU army, which is something that President Macron has pushed um, quite forcefully over the last several years. But particularly leaders, I believe, like Angela Merkel, were not particularly into that idea. Um, I was wondering if you think that with the, the massive difference in the German um, and German defense spending and whatnot over the next few years, if you think there will be a difference there. And I know you mentioned with Afghanistan that they, they failed a simple task like um, getting their own people out of the country. But do you think there is potential there? And if so, do you think that it could be an organization that actually works or is that too far in the future, perhaps to, to really consider as a, a realistic possibility at the moment? When people talk about an EU army, it seems to indicate there's like this different set of forces that would be somehow created. It's always, I think, useful to just step back and realize, you know, armies are come from countries. And most EU countries are also NATO allies and vice versa. And it's the same set of forces. It's not it wouldn't be Germany creating an EU army or a NATO army. It's 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 Germany deciding to send its forces within the EU leadership arrangement or a NATO leadership arrangement or on its own. And that would go for most EU countries. So uh, it's really how you set up the planning process, whether you would want the EU to take the lead on something or NATO or some coalition of, of European countries, which is often actually more what really happens or not, but not to create some separate thing. The EU just did pass this uh, and publish, if you want to look it up, what's called the Strategic Compass. So this is sort of the EU guiding document, if you will. It doesn't have the same weight as the NATO strategic concept, but it, it gives an indication. And what they have said is they'd like to create the ability of 5,000 troops able to be deployed to deal with you know security contingencies. I mean, 5,000 troops is not a lot, frankly, it mainly it indicates it's mainly about crisis management, probably in the southern periphery of Europe. I think that's the level of ambition at the moment. It's probably useful to remember that in the 1990s, when this first came out, the EU set what they called the headline goal of 60,000 troops, and it never happened. So there's some skepticism about the EU's ability to you know put this together under an EU hat. But NATO and the EU have arrangements, which they also worked out, in which if NATO decided not to act, uh, the EU could take on the leadership. And actually, the deputy commander of NATO, which is a European, would be then double-hatted and, and be able to lead those. So those arrangements are actually in place. So rather than get you know lost in the arcane NATO-EU you know, institutional mechanisms, it's probably useful to focus on capabilities. What can Europe actually do? And this is where I think you have a new attitude by the United States that 
as I said, had been reluctant before to allow much of this to happen. But I think given all the pressures on the U.S., uh, is changing. So what I and others have said with all this new European interest in spending money is that needs to be geared to very clear goals. And I would just, just to provoke people or just to put it out there, I think there are three. Europe should be able to provide half of the forces and the capabilities required to defend and deter Russia. Half. They can't even provide half of that at the moment. The United States provides much more than that. I think that is simply something that would make sense to people. It also is important to realize, you know, if there would be a conflict that would break out simultaneously with China and Asia, and we have again Russia and Europe, the United States might not be able to deploy reinforcements to Europe. Uh, the European allies should be able to pick this up, whether it's under the EU or NATO umbrella. So that's a very big, tall order. This is we're talking about a you know a decade or so of of effort. The second is back to what I had said much earlier in the program: is uh, if the alliance, if we're moving to forward defense and deterrence by denial, that means European forces need to be permanently stationed forward into these frontline states. And that's that would be a change from the current measure. That means more European forces, you know, away from home. And third, Europe should be the first responder to crises in and around its southern periphery in particular. That is, crisis management operations should really be European-led. The United States should not be asked to you know, conduct these or be the enabler of all those operations. Uh, it's stretching the U.S. too thin uh, to do both collective defense on the central front against Russia, deal with China, and all the other global issues we have, and also help Europeans with some of the, you know, issues in terms of crisis management. And so if European allies could take the lead for those types of missions uh, and have the capabilities to do that, that would lessen reliance on the United States, which seems to be the interest. It would also allow the U.S. to focus in Europe on the things that it can do best. And it would not necessarily take away from the U.S. focus on the Indo-Pacific. These are the kind of hard discussions we're going to have to have about what the determination is to build European capabilities will mean. For what purpose exactly? And I think that's, you know, the debate that's going to unfold now in the next couple of years. Thanks a lot for that, Professor and Jake. A really, um, really good, expansive question. Making my mind just wonder even more. I want to ask more myself. So next up, I think Jaya has a question uh, and then we'll jump over to Royfield. So Jaya, all yours. Thank you, Piotr. Thank you for the opportunity. I especially like this discussion and where you landed, uh, Professor Hamilton. So my question is if you could discuss um, the U.S.'s role as a mediator in international conflict, and particularly in the current Russia-Ukraine war, I think that might extend your last comments around the strategic goals that will take us in for a few years, several years in the uh, in the future. Thank you. The backdrop to this, of course, is the United States, Russia, the U.K. Uh, had agreed some decades ago on Ukraine's uh, security in the context of Ukraine agreeing to give up its nuclear weapons, which it had because it had them when the Soviet Union dissolved. 
That didn't work out. Uh, Russia, of course, violated it, but the U.S. and the U.K. did not come to Ukraine's assistance. The U.S. as a guarantor of Ukrainian security is, uh, you know, how shall we say it, a bit questionable from the Ukrainian side. Also, the U.K.'s role, of course. So any, uh, I'm not sure the U.S. can mediate here because clearly the Russians think it's not impartial. At the moment, some of the channels being used are through Israel and Turkey, which have been straddling the line a little bit and at least bringing the Ukrainians and the Russians together. In the end, you know, the settlement will have any settlement, if it happens, has to be acceptable to the Ukrainians. And so it's hard for us to tell them you know, what they should accept. When Mr. Zelensky says he will, you know, talk about Ukrainian neutrality and so on, there are many different forms of neutrality. It's it's not clear what yet that would mean or whether it impl- implicates anybody else. Some forms of neutrality do rely on out- external powers uh, guaranteeing things. So I think the U.S. could be part of a solution, probably not going to mediate the settlement itself, if there is one. But certainly how what the how U.S. reacts to that will be important. And I think it can can do a lot of positive things. But it's, I think we're just too early days to know exactly how that could uh, play out. Thanks a lot for that, Professor Njai. Great question. Royfield, my friend, and then we'll jump over to Aaron. Uh, thank you for that, Piotr. Almost regardless of the outcome of this war, if this ends by conventional means, it's hard to see for the foreseeable future how Russia can be um, a threat to to Eastern Europe in in the in the short term. In the short term, um, the Russian military uh, will have to have to have some level of strategic retreat. However, how important do you see things like the Visegrad group and also the Scandinavian kind of defence groupings? Are we going to see under the kind of the umbrella of NATO uh, more? Uh, regional cooperation between smaller states for mutual defense and also for economic strategic development? And how do you think that might expand and possibly play out? Well, I mean, as, as we had said earlier about PN architecture, there are all sorts of smaller groupings of different kinds of states. They interact in all sorts of ways. The Visegrad group emerged in the end of the Cold War uh, as the central Euro- the four central European countries there tried to um, particularly lobby for bringing Western institutions, the EU and NATO. And it's continued as an informal kind of grouping. The trouble they've had is they haven't been particularly unified in recent years with Poland and Hungary having some challenges in terms of rule of law and democracy in the Czech Republic and Slovakia having sort of a different you know views on some of those things. So it's been mainly a political grouping. It hasn't really done more than that. It's a, it's a framework for some consultation. But it's been useful, I think, broadly to allow those consultations to happen. I don't see it taking on any additional role at, at the moment. Just all on those lines, the one that's of particular interest, I think, in recent years is what's called the Three Cs Initiative. So this is a band of Central East European states uh, stretching from the Baltic states down to uh, the Adriatic and also including Black Sea, that's the three seas, to kind of deal with the legacy of the Soviet empire, which was that all of the infrastructure links, uh, if you think about it, ran from east to west, uh, energy, transportation, and now and then the digital things, information technology at the time. There was nothing north-south in Europe. It had all been destroyed uh, through wars and the Cold War. And 
you know, East Central Europe and history has been a basically a collection of links between cities. Borders always change in those countries historically, but the cities became sort of the connectors. And all of that infrastructure ran deeply and intensely north-south, and all of it was destroyed. And so the three C's is an effort to create new infrastructure links between the north and the south part of Central Europe. Uh, and that, I think, has lots of promise. Uh, the U.S., Germany, and the European uh, Commission are sort of observers to that, but the members are, uh, you know, in Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, one idea would be, in fact, to include Ukraine in that type of grouping. It's not NATO, it's not EU, it's uh, it's kind of its own thing. So here's where some, some kind of sub-regional initiatives might be interesting because they're also very practical. This is about connecting uh, countries. It's not about military uh, alliances and things. In terms of Northern Europe, uh, you know, this is another area of tremendous flux. Um, Sweden and Finland, both having really stri- striking debates now about whether to join NATO or not. Uh, public opinion in both countries now is pro-joining NATO. Uh, I don't know if that'll last, but at the moment, it you know, it's reversed lots of previous thinking. Um, the Swedish prime minister has said not not useful for us to consider that now. Finnish president has been uh, coy about it, but being not a member of NATO has been critical to Finland's own security policy. But, you know, if things develop and those countries decide to join NATO, you know, NATO allies probably would be ready to take them in. But that would extend NATO's border with Russia considerably, if you think of Finland's long, long border with Russia. The other thing you're seeing is that Sweden and Finland have come together in their own sort of mini defensive alliance, integrating a lot of their work together and basically, you know, joining forces as much as they can. And then there's the whole Nordic dimension to this. Denmark, I mentioned before, is also changing its defense policy. It might go the other way. It might do more with the EU than it had in the past. And Norway, you know, is staunch NATO member, also has a border with Russia, but the whole Arctic dimension. One other development that's happening as a consequence of the war is the Arctic Council, which for so many years was able to sidestep all of the great power competition, has also kind of basically shut down because of Russia's participation in the war. So even that's been, you know, affected now. So we'll have to see. But, you know, there's tremendous turbulence going on in Northern Europe. Some of those things don't um, take the place of alliances, but Sweden and Finland are like, they have the same status actually as Ukraine does with NATO. They're enhanced opportunity partners is the term. And they're drawing ever, ever closer to NATO in terms of real operational interaction. Uh, Many recent NATO meetings have included Sweden and Finland in the meetings, even though they're not allies. So this is all moving and depending on how the conflict evolves, likely to continue. Thanks a lot, Professor, for that really expansive answer and, and Royfield getting my uh, my brain going as well. I'm, uh, I'm very interested in this uh, Three Cs uh, initiative. I'd never heard of it before and, and, and something I would love to 
uh, to explore in greater detail. And I, I think, as it's known, the uh, modalities for strengthened interaction, OMSIs, I think, is is what the uh, the Finnish have have activated in in their in their relationship with NATO as well. So there's quite a few interesting things. Um, but next up, Erin, the floor's you yours. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Doctor uh, Professor Hamilton, uh, for responding our questions. I have a, a growing concern about how our uh, dependency on China uh, is uh, uh, uncovering a certain supply chain related issues and how critical. Uh, some of these uh, supply chain issues are in terms of dependency on China. Uh, so uh, in your vast experience uh, around uh, American foreign policy and uh, transatlantic relations, uh, what would be uh, your um, view for upcoming policy shifts that U.S. may need to uh, remove that dependency Plus, internally, what can we do to uh, create more awareness uh, in terms of how we need to develop the green energy, reliable, uh, just the shift, shift towards green energy, uh, renewable energy internally and externally, how to remove our reliance on uh, China and Russia? Uh, there are sort of different dimensions to that. Of course, there's the bilateral U.S.-China dimension. I think you have seen pretty strong bipartisan agreement in the United States that the terms of entanglement, if you will, with China uh, that have developed over the last few decades have to be uh, fundamentally rethought. Uh, I don't think it's a partisan issue. There, here or there, there are partisan differences, but it's, it's remarkable in, in such a polarized country how strong that view is. So it doesn't mean the term decoupling that's used often from China, I think, you know, is evocative. People can identify that. It's like cutting off the, you know, the cord. But we are very deeply intertwined with China. I don't think that's really what we're in complete, you know, just cold turkey on China isn't going to happen. So it's more about redefining the terms of interdependence with China in ways that are not impairing one's security or technological capabilities. And, you know, that happens case by case, country by, I mean, uh, sector by sector, and it's proceeding, you know, with ups and downs. Much of the case many would make is you don't only do that, but you build up your own capacity at home uh, to compete. And there you see a lot of initiatives in the Congress, many of which haven't haven't yet seen the light of the day. But uh, there's lots of money potentially about to be unleashed to support U.S. you know domestic capacity and in uh, sort of new and emerging technologies that would ensure that the U.S. can compete. And I think the other development you've seen, particularly in the last year, is a shift in the European debate about China. Uh, the EU's uh, formal approach is to call China, you know, in some areas a partner, like climate change, some areas it's a competitor in economic areas, particularly, and, and they use the term strategic rival. But the strategic rival part has not really been developed as much, whereas in the U.S. that's, you know, has been the main focus. But if you look at common statements the U.S. and the U. have been making in China, they are both now using sort of that framework. The challenge is it's hard to compartmentalize those, you know, partner with China on some things when you're competing uh, heavily in, in others. And so I think what's happening right now is that this is likely to come to a head because of what's China going to do about Ukraine. It has a choice, frankly, to make. It can either 
main right now it's sort of maintaining a you know russian friendly neutrality i guess is one way you could put it uh but will it side with putin provide him with arms as they've asked to help the ukrainian war uh will they do other things that will help the russians evade sanctions uh if so i think the us would immediately push for secondary sanctions on china or on chinese companies that do that where the europeans come out on that i think is uh still open but i think part of the president's trip to europe this week was in fact to raise that issue because he had met with xi jinping last week and uh you know where china comes out will be will be important and that just highlights how the the north atlantic and the indo-pacific theaters as i've said is are strategically linked now it's not you know in in europe i think much of the debate has been often about china being far far away and a good customer but there are many things china is doing that have you know direct implications for european activities and as secretary general solberg says it's not that china is so far we we're not going to china china is coming to us if you think about defense related investments uh, i mean about chinese investments in defense related and industries in europe investments in strategic ports 5g infrastructures all sorts of things like that that's critical for europeans own security uh the belt and road initiative uh is a sort of a connectivity initiative that will uh, align lots of countries with china uh, based on standards that are probably not european and more significantly i think for european interests china is contesting basic norms of the of the what you call the global commons so basic basic things that are globally important like freedom of the seas freedom of information outer space arctic security all of these are being contested in some way or another either through norms or physically contested uh, by china when you have 80% of europe's trade flowing through Uh, Indo-Pacific straits that are contested by China Europe has a direct stake in that uh and that's again where the US role becomes important uh to Europe not only what it's doing in Europe but what it's doing in other parts of the world so i think uh this is you know quite critical for us to deal with on a variety of fronts the US EU front NATO and so on uh the i can think the next step on the transatlantic agenda is probably in mid may there is a meeting of the what's called the USEU Trade and Technology Council this was set up last fall it has 10 working groups uh, ranging from you know <clears throat> clean technologies to norm standards to export controls investment screening misuse of technology about human rights and that is they have said not an anti-china effort but much of the implication of that would be uh to reposition the US and in the EU to sort of uh, outcompete uh China. Uh and so what what they do in mid May would be a sort of a next indicator of how serious sort of a transatlantic realignment is about about China. Thank you for that really expansive answer. I think the the term that the foreign policy magazine used was benevolent neutrality to describe uh China's relationship to the current conflict and and Russia and Ukraine and and broadly what's happening so i think that's an interesting um spin on it as well um 
Maybe we can go to Jacob if you had, I know, a second question and one that we haven't touched upon much. So uh, we can round out with you. Absolutely. Um, um, I had a question for you, Professor Hamilton, um, about refugees. So as we saw in the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015, 2016, Europe was very divided about that. And of course, there's a, a difference in the origin of the refugees the, uh, and the cultural connection to the refugees. However, I'm wondering, it seems like right now that Europe is relatively divided on bringing in refugees to the EU and not putting too many barriers in their way. But of course, this is the heat of the moment. And this is just the beginning. So I'm wondering what you think might happen in the longer term, let's say over the next one, two, three years, and whether this refugee issue might divide Europe. Because right now, Poland is definitely taking the brunt of the refugee crisis. The last stats I saw, they actually had about two thirds of total refugees from Ukraine were in Poland, and it's well over two million now. So do you think that this might create another internal dispute within the EU? Or do you think they can all play nice and find a solution that kind of um, distributes the burden, the financial burden of these millions of refugees. This is the fastest uh, refugee crisis uh, of this magnitude since World War II. Uh, the other ones have also been important. It's important to remember also during the Balkan Wars in the 1990s, there were massive flows of refugees into uh, EU countries. Uh, many of them returned, but not everybody. Also, Germany, you know, when it unified uh, because of the way the context was, took in also a lot, you know, probably a few million ethnic German compatriots, if you will, from the Eastern countries and integrated them. Of course, they were not, not they didn't even speak German, many of them, even though they had the, the ethnic German background. So Europe has been you know, confronted with these waves. I think it's just the the power and the force and the magnitude and the speed with which this is happening that is being really challenging. If you were seeing the mayor of Warsaw met with President Biden and he was just saying how fast, you know, this has been so overwhelming in just a couple of weeks, the same pace of refugee influx as in 2015 in, a, in an entire year. But I think what's been striking about it is when you say long term, uh, the European Union has a uh, something called a, a protection directive that it set up after the Balkan crises, but didn't really ever use exactly for this type of contingency. Uh, and they've activated it. So this temporary protection directive means the EU funds can be used for refugee uh, support, not just emergencies relief, but to integrate them into labor markets, provide them with educational benefits, health benefits, social support, uh, all sorts of things. And it goes on for three years, probably with an extension beyond that. So actually, in, in just a space of a few weeks, this is already in place. Uh, and it allows the number of countries that wouldn't have the wherewithal to tap into a different source of funding that's EU-wide. Now, where the refugees end up, of course, it, it, we don't know. Uh, most of them will want to go home. But I think some of them are looking for family. I have friends in Germany who said you see, see waves of them in the train stations, you know, but they're looking for family and then they might go on. Some are going to the Nordic countries, you know, wherever they might have some connection. But I think most of them will want to come home. The president said, the U.S. would take up to 100,000, which is quite a striking number uh, given our mixed record, shall we say, on admission of uh, these folks uh, in recent years. Uh, I'm not sure they would want to come all the way to the United States, but if they do, 
uh, the U.S. had you know, made that commitment. Um, so we shall see. But I think what the EU has done this time is very different than what it had done before. I have reason to hope that it would be integrated. I think we have some real challenges, though. We tend to focus on Poland, but the country that's really overwhelmed is Moldova. You know, poorest country in Europe, taking in all these refugees, unable to do that. And it has a separatist, you know, conflict on its own territory. So it is vulnerable. And, you know, if we talked about a widening war, I would look there first. I wouldn't look north. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we need to think about the, those weak spots of Europe as much as we think about our own, you know, alliance territory. Thank you very much for that great, uh, great question, uh, Jacob, and for rounding us out. And I think uh, one of the most important elements of this entire conflict and something that, you know, at the end of the day, the people who suffer the most are uh, the civilians and the local p communities. And, and we, we, it's important to always talk about the humanitarian aspect of this as well as the security and the political. But thank you very much, Professor. Um, really appreciate your extensive time today. Been a, a masterclass of, I think people will want to hear from you again. Um, but I was just wondering, um, as we wind down uh, this the, this podcast and discussion, is there anything, any departing remarks, any things you'd like to leave us with? Uh, and also where people can engage with your yourself, with your content? Oh, sure. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is a new format for me. So uh, it's fun to see all of this happening. And I, I appreciate all the engagement and activity. I mean, this is an hourly issue. We're confronted with uh, an amazing crisis. Uh, it's really going to change Europe, certainly. Each of us have to understand how we could possibly re react to that in our own best way. You can just, uh, if you want to follow my stuff, I have a website. It's just transatlanticrelations.org, which has all the things in it. Besides Brookings and SICE, I, uh, I'm the president of a group called the Transatlantic Leadership Network, and that has also a lot of material. That's transatlantic.org. So the two are confusing. One's transatlantic.org, the other's transatlanticrelations.org. Absolutely, Professor. It's been a, a joy to have you, and I, I look forward to hosting you very soon, hopefully again. And everybody, thank you. You've been, this is the, uh, the Big Picture Club and podcast brought to you via Clubhouse. Hopefully you can join us in future sessions. I'm your host, Piotr. Thank you very much for joining us. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Global Gambit. Lastly, don't be shy. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.